iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. It's Monday. We hope you've had a great weekend. I'm Hugh Wisencroft. And today, Liverpool are back and so is Mohamed Salah. Tottenham Hotspur lose again. Is this manager really holding them back? Elsewhere, Patrick Bamford continues to improve and impress, as does Eberichi Eze. We'll take a look at some of the players making the step from the Championship to the Premier League look like a walk in the park. And I'll be speaking to Tony Cascarino as well. The former Marseille striker joins me to discuss the fruity life of a player in the south of France. To help me through it all, Alison Rudd, Tom Clark, and Gregor Robertson. How are you doing, guys? Good. How are you? Very well. Thank you. Very well. I hope you all enjoyed the weekend, Alison. You are unmistakable. Let's call it that. Sitting on the edge there at Stamford Bridge. You, you, that, that, that <laughs> Did hair. You make, Did you see me? Did you see me? Absolutely. <laughs> and that, that hair makes you look so cosy because I can tell that, you know, I've got a shaved head. The breeze doesn't hit you in the same way it hits me, <laughs> you know, somewhere like that. I love the fact it, it's the perspectives. I wasn't actually that close to Thomas Tuchel, but my son took a photograph of a sort of screenshot of me on BT Sport. And it looked like I was right next to him doing all his analysis for him <laughs> on my laptop <laughs> absolutely it did and um and tom clark you were jinxed this weekend weren't you i was jinxed too yeah that's, that's right up, isn't it? <laughs> it, is, it is a little bit of a setup he's, he's tapped it across the goal and all i've got to do is side foot yeah, into the it. net if that's all right i hope you don't mind um just for uh, listeners gregor has a bit of a reputation on the sports desk among the editors for being a bit of a jinx he does his weekly column going to clubs around the country to tell their stories. And the frequency with which he then sees that club lose is quite extraordinary. Uh, He's been to watch my club Lincoln, I think, four times. We've got one point from those four games. Uh, And on Saturday, he went to watch us play Doncaster. We had 71% possession. We missed two penalties. We had 10 shots. We hit the bar and we lost 1-0. So... I mean, you could you could say we need to get better at taking penalties and taking our chances. I prefer to blame Gregor entirely. The Robertson effect. Gregor, this, this journeyman column could could soon turn into, you know, the biggest jinx in the world. Yeah. I, actually, I actually just got a text message from uh, Liam Scully, the, the chief executive who uh, I spoke to at the game. Nice guy. He said, uh, thanks for the article, Gregor. Narrates the story well. Appreciate your interest. I do, however, have to inform you that you are banned from the ground in future, <laughs> given you don't seem to bring us much luck. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, right. my reputation is uh, is growing. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, it, it sounds like you all had an enjoyable weekend, in- including Gregor, who got to write himself a, a rare defeat for Lincoln City because they are still having a great They were season. impressive, though. I, I know Tom goes on about Lincoln an awful lot on this podcast, but... They were very impressive and it was one of those games where you kind of, I think one of the questions put to Appleton was, um, 
because Darren Moore is his counterpart and they're good friends and he's saying, you know, will you be asking Darren Moore for his lottery numbers this weekend? That kind of summed up how fortunate Doncaster were to win. And Lincoln on the up could be in the championship. So I think we're going to have to put Tom on mute if that happens. Oh, praise be. <laughs> praise be. Robertson agreeing with me. Oh, what a start to the week. This is so, <laughs> Except so you don't want to be in the championship, but we'll, we'll come yeah, to that. Yeah, we'll, on we'll come day. to that later, yeah, later yeah. on. I'm sure you'll still celebrate promotion. Um, look, let's talk about a team towards the top of the Premier League, of course. An enjoyable weekend, too, for those that love Liverpool. Alisson up to third at four points behind Manchester City now, who, who do have a game in hand. But it's the manner of their win and wins since the last time we've spoken over West Ham and Spurs, both in London, both 3-1 wins as well. That was, I think, most impressive because it, it felt like Liverpool had realised once again how easy it is for them to score goals. <laughs> and how much we love playing in London for some reason. Um, if we're not scoring seven, we're scoring very beautiful goals. Um, yeah, no, it, the whole the whole thing was... Uh, speaking as a Liverpool fan, but I suppose a lot of people who are looking on for the title race didn't want Liverpool to drop out of it. Um, it was uh, there was just something so joyous about every element of of the game at the London Stadium. I'm not sure really what made me giggle more. It, I think probably that shot of um, James Milner running back to have a laugh with Jurgen Klopp because they'd had a bit of a discussion about why are you taking me off and. I thought I was supposed to be deliberately not running as much, boss. And then you take me off, or you're punishing me for not running as much, boss. And um, and then within within seconds, his replacement Curtis Jones uh, sets up Salah for a goal, and James Milner comes running back to sort of punch Klopp on the arm and have a giggle about it. And just in that little vignette, you could tell that they're not a team in crisis. They're are all really quite happy which is relevant because there are some teams who are quite sad at the moment according to other famous managers and I just thought wow you know they've been through the mill they've had a lot of criticism injuries are a problem uh, Klopp in his post-match still um, dis- sort of explained all his decisions based not so much on tactics but on worry about people with their you know the, the injuries they they might have the niggles they might have trying to protect players it's a big worry at Anfield that they keep losing players, but they're they're sort of giggling, smiling, and as you say, Hugh, they've discovered how to score goals. And I, I've just run out of words to describe that absolutely beautiful, beautiful Salah goal. Uh, Trent, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Himself, you think, he's back, he's back, and he, he passes it across, well, he, what, what you call it? it's not a pass, pass isn't an adequate word, right? He distributes it beautifully to, 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 to the other side of the pitch, and, and, and Shakiri his decides to, I don't know, what's he trying to do? Is he, is he just feeling really happy? But he's showing off, isn't he? And his first time ball in, and my first thought was, well, that's just a bit ambitious, isn't it? And the way Salah, oh, I mean, there's just something about uh, the control there and the audacity and the confidence. 
There's something about football, isn't there, that you can do things in football that you did it in any other form of life. People would say, oh, you bloody show off. Stop it. But you're allowed you're allowed to be like that in football. I think maybe that's why we like it. It's your inner child and your inner genius and you're allowed to just show off, show off, show off. And it was just uh, made me very happy. I think we gather that. <laughs> it really I thought it was all right. <laughs> Listen, there was plenty more to praise about the way Liverpool played as well, and I won't just leave it to Alison to do that. Um, they started with Firmino on the bench, Mane was out injured, Shakiri, Milner, and Origi all in the starting eleven. And a lot of people, you know, the WhatsApp group was saying, oh my word, look at this Liverpool lineup. Could be a difficult day for them, could be West Ham's opportunity. Um but I think it's the changes from Klopp Gregor in many ways over the last couple of games that have breathed new life into Liverpool's um, play. Yeah, I think I think you see kind of you see Thiago taking a bit more more control, and Liverpool play a little bit differently with him in midfield too. It seems to be a little bit more, I don't know, a little bit slower perhaps. Although saying that, obviously the goals goals are rapier quick uh, counter break uh, counter attack, but also just I think I think we are seeing a few a few of their key players raising their standards again Trent being one and Salah obviously he had a little bit of a dip in, in, in form um, but as Alison said absolutely sublime touches kind of the really it was an interesting analysis as well actually a match of the day last night with Eddie Howe saying that about the, the, the four passes or fewer with some of the, the counter attacks and Liverpool was the same it's really that looked that almost undefendable that, that break and you know, Salah's touch was just exquisite. So I think we're just seeing a few of the players who had dipped, kind of raising their standards again, um, and and a few of the players who have come in are kind of rejuvenated Liverpool a little bit. But you know, I think a lot of that is down to Klopp too, and he's the way he's kind of continued to be positive, even despite the kind of it almost seemed like Liverpool were falling into a crisis. That happens very quickly these days, but. Klopp's personality, I think, kind of has come to the fore here. Tom, what did you think about their their back to back wins in London? Well, it's the shortest lived uh, crisis of a season filled with football crisis, isn't it? Um, it, I think, it says a lot about Jurgen Klopp uh, and, as Gregor said, his personality that you know they've been able to ride this difficult period. Uh, and come out of it with two wins that, you know, only a week ago we were saying, oh, Tottenham, Tottenham and West Ham, this will really test them. Two teams that are good at defending. They've looked like they're struggling at breaking the opposition down. And the fact that they've scored scored good goals and a good a number of goals as well in those games says a lot about Jurgen Klopp. And you only need to look at his post-match press conferences when he's back to that beaming white smile that almost blinds you with those, those bright white teeth to know that he's much happier. But I think Gre- Gregor makes a point in uh, echoing Eddie Howe with the fast counter-attacks. That was, I remember doing some analysis on Klopp's Liverpool when they kind of first reached the very top. It's when they'd kind of had those wins against uh, Manchester City and everyone started going, oh God, they're going to challenge Pep. And I think it was the Champions League game where they you know, just completely blew them away. But the, they weren't so much counter-attacks, but the goals all came from them winning the ball and scoring within, you know, 20 seconds or more, you know, not not much more than that. And I think that that came from confidence. And as Alison, you know, so poetically described that goal, d- d- taking those opportunities, Trent playing that ball, Shakiri playing that pass, Salah taking that touch, 
comes from a confidence in in your ability and not doubting yourself. And so I think that's that's an ominous sign for the rivals is that Liverpool can sup- supposedly have had this dip and this crisis, and yet their players are still playing with that that confidence. And the third goal as well, I thought the third goal was fantastic as well in terms of the intricacies in the box, the little flicks and touches. That was the other side of Liverpool. I think that, that they've got they seem to have those two things, both the lightning quick counter attacks where before you know it you've conceded a goal but also the little intricate moments in and around the box, which weren't coming off in the games against Burnley and Manchester United. Those little touches weren't finding teammates. I think it's um, it's ominous for the team, for the opposition. I, I know we've said it before too, but I think we just you can't underestimate Henderson's kind of, I don't know, his, the, his stature and importance to that team. It's even, even you know, we've seen him... There's a joke that Milner said, you know, if you keep playing like this, you might find yourself playing centre half for for a bit longer. But even did you see who was chasing Salah? Salah took that touch and put in. Who was right behind them? Who ran the length of the pitch behind them to kind of support that move, that attack? Henderson. He just drives that team on. And any low point. We spoke last week about United a little bit lacking someone like that. This is, you know, you put someone like Jordan Henderson in a United team that would, you would imagine that would drive the team forward and moments when they were you know finding difficulties someone like that is what they're, they're missing so he's he's huge for Liverpool absolutely huge just wonder what would have happened if that Shakiri cross went straight into Fabianski's arms and he longed it down the other end of the pitch and Jordan Henderson was still in the box what we might be saying if they'd conceded at the other end but it all worked out perfectly well for Liverpool's captain um I agree with you Tom though my favorite goal on the day was that third goal 33 passes unofficially because of a little toe end from Declan Rice in the build-up but that exactly exactly awful but um a little back heel that you mentioned from Oxlade Chamberlain Firmino's pass back into Wijnaldum Fantastic. And I think Firmino's played with much more freedom. The game that I went to on Thursday night at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, I thought he, he was excellent. His confidence has, has grown, his impact linking play. Salah as well, um, who I know we've mentioned already, but he is now the first Liverpool player with 20 plus goals in all competitions in four straight seasons since Ian Rush way back when. Fantastic for him and the club. But I think we should reflect on, because I think it was one of the performances of the season in many ways, that game on Thursday night. Um, because I, I think it, it brings into focus what happened for Spurs this weekend as well. Um, Alison, do, do you think Spurs almost allowed Liverpool on Thursday night that chance to rekindle the fire in many ways? Because they'd gone, what, nearly seven hours without a, a league goal before that match? And it was so comfortable for them on Thursday night. It does make you question how teams are prepared for the opposition. Patrick Bamford was saying on TalkSport this morning that when they play their murder ball, they do so against the formation they think they're going to come up against next. So they're, they're having a little spasm of let's just get in the mindset of who we're playing against. This doesn't mean um, that you're being deferential or you're on the back foot. I think it makes perfect sense if you're a manager to actually think about who your opposition are next. And I think probably the most surprising thing about Spurs on Thursday was that Mourinho didn't seem to have prepared the team that you're up against a team that are in a bit having a few problems. And I'd like you to look at that back line and see how disjointed it is 
they've got an injury crisis, this is a perfect opportunity to go at a team when they're down. Really go for it. Um, you're, you know, on paper, mate, you're the best. So go out there and really show them that, that, that we're the team brimming with talent and la la la, they don't. They, for some reason, they ignore the fact that Liverpool are uh, bereft in defence and are very uh, negative. Um, but not, it wasn't so much negative. I'm nothing against a team that wants to set up defensively and catch on the break and take it slow. But the, the, their mindset was not one of, we can do this. And that was replicated again this weekend. And so I just wonder... You know, it's all very well Mourinho coming out saying, oh, we're a sad team without confidence. If you can't see how your your opponents might be there to be, their weaknesses can be exploited. It's like they're almost too self-absorbed. So there was an absolute disconnect watching Spurs against Liverpool as though they, I don't know, someone had put the wrong showreel in the machine and they'd watched, they'd watched Liverpool from, you know, 18 months ago and not the past previous sort of five games. It just seemed very odd that you can't, that you, I mean, I don't know, Spurs seem to be going along a track on their own. They don't seem to be reacting to what's they're coming up, what's, what's happening next, who they're facing next and what's there in front of them. I don't know. I don't know. And Mourinho is not a deferential manager, so I don't, I don't get it. Really don't get it. It has seemed in, in many ways like, Jose Mourinho saying his team was was lacking self-esteem. I, I think his his lineups in many ways scream that he wasn't confident in the players at, at certain times, particularly when it comes to just trying to be a little bit more attacking. Spurs beaten 1-0 by Brighton at the weekend. They've now won two of their last nine league games since going top of the table in the first week of December. Uh, manager Jose Mourinho says they are suffering with sadness, as Gregor alluded to already. They're without Harry Kane at the moment. And they were they were they were just dismal in my opinion. They were an open team with a back five. Tangi and Dombele was playing in a midfield two. Sissoko was playing right wing back after a fallout with the manager and Serge Aurier. Gareth Bale started, all eyes on him. He never delivered. Gregor, do you think it's a, a season falling apart for Spurs? I don't think it is that uh, extreme. I think I think possibly we're looking at Spurs being a kind of slightly lesser version of Manchester United and that they'll have really good periods of, of form and it'll click, you know, Harry Kane and, and uh, Son up front will combine and they'll score goals. They might score the goals that will win, win the team a game and then they can sit back and people will accept that they're playing in this way because they're holding on to a lead. But when it doesn't click and, and when you're playing in this way, the risks, when you're inviting the team, the, the opposition, even if it's a team like Brighton who are a, who play good football and are a decent footballing team, if you invite them on, um, they're also looking at, they're making some pretty pretty poor mistakes now. I mean, Lloris against Liverpool was had, a, had an awful game. And, you know, they've put, put in Rodan, who's a good defender, but, you know, he's going to have to learn on the job. And in a back three, you're slightly more exposed. Um, and Brighton found, found space between... Tottenham's uh, central defenders and as you say if you've got a back three and then Davis and Sissoko as your wing backs and Hoiberg in the middle that's like <laughs> that's six players really who are kind of very much defensively minded one of them completely out of position Sissoko and 
if you don't have Kane as your focal point, then that's a hugely depleted team. And there's not much. I don't know. There just didn't seem doesn't seem to be much craft in Tottenham for Tottenham Hotspur at the moment. And and I think with the players at the disposal, we're coming back to the same thing again. With the players at their disposal, it's understandable that Tottenham fans look at that and think we should be seeing more from this group of players from this team. We have players who can do more if they are kind of liberated a little bit more. I think and. That's the kind of that's the conundrum now for Tottenham Hotspur. I think I just think I don't think it's we're going to see them fall apart. I don't think this is you know people are starting to look back at Josie's tenures and how they've ended at other clubs um, and wondering if we're seeing a kind of a repeat uh, a repeat event here. I don't think that's the case. I think Spurs will if if Kane returns. I think that's very important. We said that as well earlier. If Kane if they don't have Kane and he always misses a chunk of the season, they're going to suffer. I think Spurs will will grind out results. I just think the the bigger vision is just nothing's changed. It's, is this is this I don't know. Is this is this the the way for Tottenham to to take the step to the next level? I'm certainly not sure about that. What do you think, Tom? I think when you put it in the context of them being you know potential title challengers, as we were discussing you know months months back after that win against Manchester City and things. It, it does look a little bit like a season unraveling to an extent. I, w- I wouldn't, uh, you know, I echo Gregor's point about you know falling apart and it all going you know disastrously and horribly wrong. But Hugh, you said they they had a good chance of finishing in the top four. You have to look at them. I think now. It's a bit stronger than that, actually. Who's pretty certain they're going to be? Well, in the I was, top four. I was uh, you know, <laughs> you put me in a good mood by praising Lincoln, so I'm being kind. Of, yeah. So, um, but the, but but I think we all would have said they had a chance certainly with Jose Mourinho as you say Gregor Harry Kane's going to miss a chunk of this potentially miss a chunk of the season now they are so you talk about Jordan Henderson before you know Tottenham seem utterly bereft without you know Harry Kane on the pitch and I was looking at some stats earlier and Harry Kane isn't only leading the way for Tottenham in terms of all the metrics that you would expect in terms of attacking metrics and chances created and like, things like that. He's also quite high up the charts for he- headed clearances. You know, he's he's just behind the centre-backs in terms of headed clearances. He's, you know, in terms of aerial duels won, he's second in the Tottenham team. He really is their all-action man. And, as, you know, we've, we've all praised his conversion from an out-and-out striker into an all-round brilliant footballer. But when you're so reliant on a player for nearly everything in your team you look completely lost without him and they 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 did they did look like that against Brighton and so you ha- you, you do have to wonder whether looking at the season overall looking at the reasons Mourinho was brought in looking at the teams that are going to be going against them can you confidently say that they're going to be in the last in the running in with a good chance of finishing in the top 4 i, I don't know whether you can at the moment with the way they're playing when you look at the four that are in there at the minute, you 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 compared them to Man United, Gregor. I think, you know, they they've both had their flirtations with being title challengers. Man United will probably cling on a little bit longer and finish in the top four. Tottenham, I'm not so sure. Yeah, I think one of the interesting comparisons with Manchester United and Tottenham that was, I think, made at the weekend by Roy Keane um, was that Manchester United were sort of touted as title winners and then froze pretty much was was basically what he was saying. And I think for Tottenham Hotspur, it was a, in my, in many ways, it was similar. You know, my 
argument that Spurs would finish in the top four was based on them playing like Jose's Inter Milan side because I thought they had all the players to play exactly like that. I didn't think they'd play a back five. I don't think they need to. You know, when Winks came on on Thursday night against Liverpool, they had more control. Certainly they had more direction. They were just at that point fighting for a foothold in the game that they'd seeded really and, and given away to Liverpool. Of course, a team that good was going to take that initiative and then they couldn't really get themselves into the match. At the weekend, I thought, well, look, he's definitely going to play Sissoko or Winks alongside Hoiberg. Once again, he played the same system and it was like, well, you're you're giving away initiative and impetus to the opposition for a second game in a row. And I wrote in my newsletter on Friday that I thought Jose Mourinho had to learn to adapt. But remember, he's already changed the formation once from that 4-3-3 to this back five. It's just not working. And again, it, for me, it comes down to how quickly he will say I was wrong and move on. And he didn't come out after either game and take any responsibility as the manager for either result. And that's the thing that I always start to feel, look, if he can't do that, someone as experienced as him, is he the right person for this major role? I just, I I, I don't know. It's interesting that after Harry Kane, the conversation, you're quite rightly bringing it back to midfield choices uh, and who to play in midfield, because you could probably say the comparison with Jose's Inter Milan is that the one player they don't have is Wesley Schneider you know, that kind of number 10 creative player. I know you might, some people might be jumping up and saying Deli Alley, but he's, he, you know, he's not playing him. Some people might be saying, and Dombele has been excellent this season, but he's not quite been that level. And the other thing I found interesting when digging into the stats was that Tottenham's second most prominent player in terms of things like passes into the final third of the pitch, past, you know, possession, touches of the ball is Hoiberg. Now, obviously, again, he's another player that at times this season we've, praised for how brilliant he is but I'm not sure you you want Hoy, Pierre-Emil Hoiberg to be your leading man when you're 1-0 down against Brighton in terms of creating chances fizzing in those passes into the little pockets of space for Bergwijn Bale for people like that so it, it's that interesting thing of where Jose builds these teams around a certain way of playing and a certain players and then when that plan A fails and those players are still in the most prominent roles, it, then they're not equipped to do the plan B, if that makes sense. I don't think Hoiberg is equipped to be your leading man in the games where you're 1-0 down against Brighton. As great a player as he is, I, I think he's a fantastic player. I just don't think he's the perfect. And so it, it's working out that, like, it sounds lazy to say, oh, Jose needs a plan B, but it's working out how to adapt and bring more players into more prominent roles. Alison, I mentioned him a little bit earlier, but I did want your view on Gareth Bale and whether the dream of him coming back to, to the Premier League and being a, a fantastic star is, is now over. Half the season gone, I think that was his fifth start under Jose Mourinho. And it was against Brighton. And it, let's be honest, it wasn't the old Gareth Bale we were watching. Well, but, but, who, but who is Gareth Bale now? I mean, Gareth Bale is a myth. He doesn't exist. He was sat on the bench for so long for Real Madrid that you were allowed to write anything or say anything you liked about him. He's this mythical creature from a cave in Wales now. And famous, famous for his love of his country and golf over his club. And, oh, you know, Spurs fans, you know, they're, they're amongst the most sort of romantic in the land because they're always looking back at how it used to be. And... 
they get bail football. We don't. And I'm not that surprised because he had so little first team football. He doesn't have the demeanour of someone who's hungry to prove a point. I mean, that's not entirely his fault. You can't you can't fake a demeanour, perhaps. But he's you know I, I just didn't get the impression he was desperate to to reach the peak his peak ever performances right now. He it just felt like it'd be quite nice to get away from Madrid and all the negativity for a bit. And he's, um, oh, he's, if you, if you put it in that context, he's exactly what he, he's exactly what he should be, which is somebody who's rusty, not as fast as he used to be. Maybe, you know, again, Mourinho keeps banging on about how depressed all his players are. Well, uh, he, he, he looks like one of those. So it looks a bit low. Um, not, not, probably not, Maybe he doesn't feel he's been managed well. Maybe he, you know, he probably feels he's been sub or dropped too long. He does seem to have niggly injuries or you know, slight problems. Um, so the idea that he could start against Brighton and take over the mantle of all those stats that, that Tom pointed out that, that Harry Kane produces is, is just fantasy land, isn't it? I don't really even blame it's just ridiculous to expect him to be a god amongst men now. Okay, sitting on the fence once again, Alison. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, Alison, just moving on to Thursday night's game because I know you watched Chelsea at the weekend. Do you fear a little bit for Tottenham Hotspur whether Bell starts or not? <laughs> um, well, I mean, the one, the one, the one ray of light or hope I really think you should cling to if you're a Spurs fan is that I, I, I remember having a conversation with Potts. Chitino, and he got very angry with me, suggesting that Spurs were actually statistically better when Kane was out because Son filled the gap beautifully and would always come to the fore, always get the goals Spurs needed. And they would they were more likely to pick up points for several of the occasions when Kane was out with his ankle injuries. They didn't miss him. And Pochettino got very cross and said, oh, you know, it's more to Kane than just his goal. But um uh, the point is, you've got in Son somebody who, if you manage him and the team around him well, can be a, uh, a match winner, no matter who the opposition are. But um, I just think, given the, the the trajectory at the moment on those two clubs, I really enjoyed watching Chelsea. I enjoyed the uh, extra oomph they had from a very, very demanding manager. I mean, you pointed out that I was... Uh, just sat behind him, um, um, but he—he, he, I had a very good view of his touchline antics. I mean, he is Basil Faulty. He goes absolutely berserk for the, over the tiniest mistake. So you know, uh, Pulisic missed a shot. It was only just wide, and most managers in that situation they lean forward and they clap in that slightly patronising way they have. But they're trying to show. That's good. You got into the right position. I want you to do more. Maybe do it a bit better next time. Little clap, little clap. Uh, not, not Thomas Tuchel. No, he just his, his arms and legs went off in different directions. He started groaning and screaming and screeching and stamping the foot, his feet like Rumpelstiltskin. I mean, there, there were, and they all looked. I mean, the only negative about the day really for Chelsea was that the players sometimes looked a little bit scared, <laughs> a little bit twitchy because he's very, very demanding. And um, and a lot of a lot of players I've seen a lot of um, were playing like Matteo Kovacic was awesome, absolutely superb. Um, so I, I can't, given the you know the mini trajectory of those two clubs, I think I think that's a 
definite Chelsea win, I would say. The one thing I would add to put the... Alice is right about when Kane has come out of the team in, in the past and Son has stepped up. But do we not just think that there was more of a kind of... a collective team's kind of system <laughs> at that stage? It wasn't as much of a reliance. Kane was still the figurehead of it, but they had behind them, they had Ericsson and Ali and, you know... They were more of a team. The fullbacks bombed on. There were there was more of a an a kind of identity to the team that wasn't counter attack and Kane and Son linking up together. I, I can't see that working out this time personally. Um, and I, one on one thing on Chelsea again, going back to I thought Eddie Howe was really good last night. The thing where we were talking about the five players pushing forward, and he's absolutely you know he's absolutely right about saying. That that is about the players backing themselves. I was not I found myself nodding along when you commit that many bodies forward. It's about the the play the team in possession backing themselves to be good enough for the ball. And I think you know if 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 Chelsea kind of get into that mindset and they you know they believe they believe that they are good enough to to be the the kind of main protagonist in every game, then you know. I, They've got the players for it. They certainly have, and and Hudson Adoy has been has been kind of unleashed a little bit as a as a kind of right wing back. Um, so no, there was definitely some positives for Chelsea there. I would agree. I would say Chelsea are going to be the likeliest in that one. Can we start a feature on the podcast called Double Six Alert? Because since Thomas Tuchel <laughs> said it, everyone's mentioning it, and Klopp Klopp mentioned it after the the win on Sunday. Incredible. I've never heard Clock go on about a double six before. It's as though Thomas Tuchel's arrived and everyone's thought, oh, I like that one. That's a nice phrase. And that, I mean, I bet you by by three weeks' time, every manager in the Premier League has mentioned their double six. I thought everyone was quite disparaging about that, actually, in the reaction, particularly fans. As I said last week, this guy turning up after the beloved Frank and talking about uh, double six. You know, I, I think he, <laughs> I'm glad he got a win, basically. You <laughs> said it was it was overdue, and it's only a second game in charge. I, know, yeah. so I, I, I understand the pressures of being the Chelsea boss. There, um, it's going to be a big game on Thursday night. Uh, Spurs hosting Chelsea, one that we'll talk about, I'm sure, in the next couple of podcasts. Um, but at the moment, you can read Gary Jacobs' views on a toothless Spurs. Uh, right now, and listen, you know, you saw Cesar Azpilicueta sprinting into the box. You saw Jordan Henderson sprinting into the box. Someone at Spurs has to take that initiative. You should take the initiative too, by the way. If you enjoy the podcast, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever you use. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss the next episode. You can get more of our award-winning journalism too by getting yourself a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. Sign up today. You'll get yourself one month free. Just go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Next up on the game podcast, we've got to speak to Tony Cascarino, the former Chelsea and Aston Villa forward, who, of course, famously played in France with Marseille. Hi, Tony. How are you doing? Yeah, very good, Hugh. You? Very well. Now, Tony, the reason we're speaking to you is because of 
Some pretty unsavoury events in Liga at the weekend. Well, not necessarily in the league, outside of it, really. Marseille's fans storming uh, their training ground. Around 150, 200 supporters or so tried to break into the centre Robbie Louis-Dreyfus as they protested against club officials. The club, of course, have have lost the last four games under manager Andre Villas-Boas. And that means that Marseille's Liga game with Rennes at the Stade Velodrome was postponed on safety grounds. But Tony, you're familiar with life uh, as a Marseille player and, and what this group of fans are like. And that has led you to read uh, write a piece in The Times uh, really describing your experience. Firstly, you know, when you moved to Marseille, uh, things must have gone okay at the start. But when things don't go right, what are those fans like? It's very difficult, uh, Hugh, to explain in many ways that I, I was totally, I wasn't conscious of the the groups and there's about five or six different groups that follow Marseille and they have leaders and they're very outspoken, they're very demanding, they put pressure, they can be quite intimidating if the club is not playing well and have a huge say by the way what happens with the football club and performance is always judged, um, like you said, four defeats on the spin. Um, I Luckily I played really well when I first went there so Selfishly, I never was really affected. I watched other people and other players um, get intimidated. It's strange experience issues. Very difficult to understand. Uh, you know the mentality of this, this this group of fans can be extreme in their views, um, not pleasant. Uh, they came onto a coach one day and demanded they speak to the team, and in no uncertain terms. Uh, let us know what was expected of us. Tell us a bit more about that story. 94, when the, the fans came onto the bus, right? Yeah, well, look, the owner, Hugh, was uh, Bernard Tappy, which, you know, he was an intimidating man as itself, and he quite enjoyed the fans putting pressure on players if things weren't going well. We had an away game, we didn't play well. Um, the leaders of about four different groups, the Yankees, the Ultras, and a couple more, came onto the bus, and we had a big game coming and told us in no uncertain terms if our performance levels uh, weren't as what they should be, there would be consequences. And I was just new to this. You know, I didn't understand French. Every player on the bus kept quiet. No one voiced. I was thinking, Hugh, why is anybody not telling them to get off the bus? You know, why are they standing there with their, you know, their scarves and, and threatening players? You know, and, and it was... It's something I'd never witnessed in football before and never witnessed after, even when I left Marseille. So it's extraordinary. But they would come to the training ground, Hugh. They would express their feelings. Oh, look, there's no, no coincidence here, Hugh, that the next home game at the Velodrome is PSG, their major rival. They beat them in the second game of the season this year or in Paris. Uh, they lost in the French Trophy uh, just recently to them. They, their intimidation is coming because of that game that's in front of them, the PSG game. And it can be very, 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 very unpleasant. Um, I can't, don't condone their behaviour at all. They can be, it can be incredible at Marseille. Anyone who's witnessed it, 
you know, the atmosphere within a stadium, it can be gripping, it can be toxic, um, but it also can be, is like you saw at the La Commandery, the training ground, things could overspill and become a real issue for the football club. Of course, you've played for Celtic as well in Scotland. You've played for Millwall, whose fans have voiced, you know, their concerns before, let's call it that, with the team in the past. How does Marseille compare? Well, you could tenfold Millwall experience, you if you like. Um, likewise, the old firm Derby, I played European matches and, and matches against PSG. I I'd say surpass whatever happened to me in Scotland, and I played two old firm derbies. Um, it's 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 really the town is the football club, and there was a lot of issues regarding Marseille. It's quite a dangerous place to live anyway. There is known as the Marseille Marseille Mafia, which is a you know it's there's a lot going on. If you're not winning games, you. Don't go out and have something to eat at a restaurant with your family and friend, or your friends you might invite over because you might find yourself in the wrong part of town with meeting the wrong sort of people. And some of them, and there is, a, like always, Hugh, a minority, will take things too far um, like they did last week. Our thanks to Tony Cascarino there, the former Marseille forward, sharing some of his memories uh, from his time in the south of France. Alison Rudd, you too have some memories of Marseille. Tell us more. After hearing Tony, I'm quite glad that my only time in Marseille, Marseille won, so there was no trouble. Uh, they beat Chelsea 1-0 in the Champions League in the year 2000, which is uh, something I will never forget because when you go with a team on the Champions League, what you do is you fly in on the day of the press conference, pretty much press conference, and then the next day, you have the day free until the match. So you can explore a new city. Um, and that's generally what people do. And it's really nice. But the night before the game, after the press conference, we <laughs> every journalist on that trip got a phone call from Ken Bates. This is the era of Ken Bates, just before Roman Abramovich bought the club. Ken Bates is um, secretary, phoned every journalist and said, Ken demands your presence at his hotel lobby in the morning and we're going to take a minibus to his favourite restaurant in Marseille. It's on the cliff edge. It's really lovely. And no one really wanted to go, but you can't, if you're on a football trip and the owner of the club says you have to come for lunch, I mean, you're not, you're not doing your job properly if you don't go. So we all turned up at his hotel. I knew it was going to be a bad day. I walked in and as I walked in, Ken Bates went, and everyone looked at him and he pulled out of his pocket a big comb and said to me, you'll be needing this, won't you, my dear? Because I've got lots of unruly hair. I thought, OK, he's, a, <laughs> he's, 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 he's not very nice, is he? And of course, everyone's so sycophantic to owners. So everyone laughed. <laughs> so we get on the, we get on the, we get on the minibus. You're thinking, oh, we could be, I could be walking around exploring a city, but I know on a minibus. Get to this uh, restaurant, which is really posh and it's overlooking the sea. It's really nice. And there's a few of the older guys who've now retired from football journalism were being really like, oh, Ken, thank you so much. This is so lovely. And we understand it's your birthday tomorrow. So we journalists have decided we're going to club together and to thank you for your hospitality. We're going to buy you a bottle of champagne from the restaurant. You can open it now, Ken, or not. It's up to you. And Ken went, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. 
And then we carried on eating and drinking and Ken was telling boring, boring stories and everyone was going, oh, it's so funny, Ken, it was so funny, it was so rich and so funny. And then, uh, and then he sort of, uh, Pudding arrived and he sort of disappeared. We thought he'd gone to take a few business phone calls from Russians probably. And then uh, he didn't come back and we waited and we waited and basically he'd driven off and left us all with the bill. <laughs> Outrageous! Did it? So, and he took the champagne. Take his champagne, yeah. He took the champagne. We paid for the champagne and the rest of the meal. And there were people on that trip who were on minimal expenses and were re- like really ruined their like their night of work because they were thinking, "Oh my god, I'm not going to get be able to claim this back." <laughs> oh my word! <laughs> what so did you have people- to eat? Was the food any good? <laughs> Oh, it was, it was a magnificent restaurant. Absolutely beautiful, but not somewhere you go on journalist expenses normally. <laughs> Absolutely blimey. So that, I don't know, that story had nothing to do with Marseille fans at all. Alison roaming <laughs> around. <laughs> Fantastic story. Just taking people out left, right and centre. <laughs> Ken Bates has gone. Gareth <laughs> yeah. Bale's gone. Thomas Tuchel, Basil Fawlty. Who's next? Come on, let's have you. <laughs> Hopefully not Tony Cascarino, who I'm sure has been into uh, some nice restaurants in Marseille as well but I was reminded a little bit earlier on he was a a second division winner with Millwall back in 88 which leads us on to our next conversation because Tony definitely made the grade at several clubs Uh, Rebecca Myers has been writing in the Times this weekend about the rising star of Crystal Palace's Eberichi Eze Martin Hardy writes about the Leeds forward Patrick Bamford and says England boss Gareth Southgate should be um keeping an eye on him. And our very own Gregor Robertson has spoke to Aston Villa's Matty Cash. Liverpool on the verge of signing Preston's Ben Davies as well as we speak. And before we discuss the impact of players from the championship, let's quickly reflect on the weekend and a couple of those players in the shape of Bamford and Eze. Tom Clark, Bamford, a goal, two assists in Leeds win over Leicester, 11 goals this season. Only got 16 in the championship last year, but he has defied expectations so far. Absolutely. He definitely impresses me every time I see him play more and more. Lots of football fans will have that moment at the start of the season where you sit down and you pick your fantasy football team. And you're always looking for those players that aren't, don't cost you that much, but are going to be, you know, big, big impact. And I looked at Patrick Banford at the start of the season and thought, nah, no chance, no chance, don't see it. He'll play the first few games and then Bielsa will decide, can't cut it, brings bring someone in from La Liga or something, no chance. And all my mates picked him and you won't be surprised to hear that I'm bottom of our fantasy football league at the minute. Uh, and and I'm still refusing to put Patrick Banford in because I'm such a stubborn git, but he, he, is, he is brilliant and he was fantastic against Leicester. One of the things that I think he's getting better and better at is his link-up play. And his play with, you know, bringing in players around him. And I think that was evident. Obviously, the pass across the goal for uh, Jack Harrison for the third. But there were chances in the first half where he's playing little one-touch passes around the corner for runners running off him in between the gaps of the Leicester defence. Which I think, if, as Martin Hardy says, if Gareth Southgate is going to be looking at him as a potential England squad player, that's what he needs to add to his game. Because he's shown already this season and his finish on, again, yesterday at the weekend was fantastic. I mean, taking that shot on, there are a lot of strikers who would try that shot and not even get it on target. You know, with your left foot going away from goal, bang, bend it 
over Schmeichel and into the top corner. It was fantastic. But he's shown he's got that confidence with his finishing. I was, again, sorry to sound like the stats man of the game podcast, but he's had the, the second most shots on target in the Premier League after Mo Salah with 30. Um, and he's had around 50 shots in total. So, you know, he, he's, he's confident in front of goal with his finishing. But I think we're starting to see that link-up play as well that is will take him to the next level and potentially potentially I I wouldn't I would never have had him in the running for an England call-up but after watching that game I I think he's if he keeps going he's got he's got a chance he's the sort of player at the start of the season that I think he was one of those that you sort of went is he a Premier League striker though you know particularly when he got 16 in the championship we're looking at uh, Mitrovic and Watkins and saying they got 10 more goals than him and, and Bamford's playing up front for the team that won the league so you can imagine why it seemed a bit a bit of a drop-off but um, he has been brilliant this year maybe he's one of those players that the Premier League suits more than the championship in many ways I think it's more that the team suits him I think that's the important thing to say you know he went to Burnley and they're you know famously Deitch kind of Threw out a throwaway comment about his about his privileged background and he <laughs> uh, didn't work out at Palace. He uh, did really well at Borough in the in the in the Championship, more in the Premier League. But it's about the team. It's about the, and the kind of trust and faith that Bales has shown in him. And you know, he's always had brilliant movement. There was the, even even you know everyone loved the, his little through ball for Dallas, but the movement before that was excellent. And I, you know, I'm I'm not quite sure about England personally. I just I'm not sure. I think the thing with him, he's always last season was his kind of conversion rate. The thing when you're playing up front for Leeds, you're going to get chances. So he, he he's take, he's he's taken more than he did last season essentially. Um, but I'm just not sure whether he's kind of. I don't know if he's quite that level personally. I think I think again as it was kind of been said over the weekend, if he does it again next season. And and he, he kind of he would rise his stature. Then people, he's now like he's kind of a somehow even though he's been on the scene for a long time, he's a breakout star in the Premier League this season. But if he does it consistently again for another year, perhaps maybe. I think uh, Ali, I'll come to you in a second. But I think he suit. You're talking about suiting a team. I think he suits England in the way that he's he can be almost a false nine. We've spoken so much about the great talent that England have in wide areas and these players that want to run in behind. Kane dropping a little bit deeper to link play up. Well, compared to Ings and Calvert-Lewin for me, so far this season, I think Bamford is better at doing that. Um, you know, I think his touch is better. I think his awareness is better of those runners around him. And, and clearly he's had to get used to it because there are lots of runners around you when you play up front for Leeds United. But if that's the way England might play, then in many ways, I think he, he might be better suited to England than, than Calvert-Lewin and Ings. Ali, what do you think about his England future? First of all, I just wanted to say Gregor and Eddie Howe sitting in a tree because Gregor's clearly fallen in love with Eddie Howe after his analysis on telly. Because Eddie Howe also said that Bamford needs to prove it next season as, as though this season doesn't count for some... I don't know why it wouldn't count now because it's, it, it's ridiculous. I don't know. I mean, you can test managers and clubs, but if a striker's getting your goals and he's... What is only behind Harry Kane in terms of English strikers? So he has to be on the radar. And Calvert Lewin. I think Calvert Lewin's ahead of him. Let's be honest about it. And so is Inks. So he's got he has got some people to overtake. He would need a bit of good fortune, I think. Ahead of them in what sense? Longevity, you mean? Having proved it for more seasons in the Premier League. Well, that and just in Gareth Southgate's thinking, I would be almost certain to see. But I just, well, I just, I just. 
I just wonder because um, Bielsa said afterwards what he was pleased with most was the fact that Bamford was prepared to pass when he could have been selfish, which is an inverse of what most managers want from their strikers. <laughs> yeah. They want them to be selfish. So I don't, I don't know. Bielsa just does my head in. I mean, he just seems to say the opposite or do the opposite of what you're supposed to do as a as a as a coach. But and it's working. If, well, ex- well, yes, well, ish. But I mean. Uh, I mean, you know, they were knocked out of the cup by Crawley. It's not completely perfect, is it? But I, it depends what sort of man Gareth Southgate is and whether that is something, and I sort of suspect it is, that Gareth Southgate would value a striker that is able to be someone on whom the pressure rests to get the goals but doesn't mind being... Um, less than alpha male and set up his colleagues. I mean, I think that's quite an interesting dynamic. I still think Calvert-Lewin and Ings have to prove themselves for England. Like For me, Ings is more of a goal scorer than Calvert-Lewin in that he can score goals for himself, which I think makes him, you know, a real candidate. I think Calvert-Lewin needs the team to get him very good goal scoring opportunities. And he's obviously got better at taking them. But I don't think either is the sort of well-rounded striker that Harry Kane is and, and Bamford isn't either. But I think that that if Bamford continues to score, you, you know, they could very much by the time we get to the Euros have an equal claim. And if we're going to take three strikers, you know, Bamford could definitely be in the conversation for number three. You know, I'm not sure Calvert-Lewin is pu- pulling up any trees at the moment. So look, big conversation to come, I'm sure. And we'll, we'll have that on the game podcast by the end of the season. Another player who came up from the championship last year, he was at Queen's Park Rangers. He's got a decision him, himself to make, I think, in terms of international football very soon, because both Nigeria and England will be interested shortly. But Everichi Eze smashed home Palace's win versus Wolves at the weekend. Gregor, I wanted to ask you what makes him such a good player at this level. He's a little bit unique. He's kind of got such a swagger about him. And he's the kind of player who I would imagine you're playing against him and he could kind of drop his shoulder about three inches and he would fall on the floor. He would sell you a dummy that easily. It was like, I certainly would. But <laughs> he's, you know, he's just so graceful, such a graceful runner and move mover on the pitch. And one of those players who's, who looks quicker with the ball at his feet, that kind of old cliche. But... Yeah. The thing is, because he, I think part that almost counted against him for a little while, he, he looks very kind of laid back and relaxed and, and kind of easy going on the pitch. Um, and that I think that can count against you in, in terms of a, you know the perception and maybe whether someone's going to, willing to spend the money. I just think that there's a, a change in attitude towards the championship from a lot of Premier League clubs now. I think, you know, we're going to talk about Ollie Watkins and, and uh, Matty Cash at at Villa. Part of that is to do with who who the manager is. Dean Smith come up through um through the football league himself. But as we say, Ben Davis going, Jared Bowen at Hull twelve months ago. There just seems to be a bit more of a willingness now to to spend the money in the championship because it's it's outside the kind of big five leagues in Europe. It's one of the best leagues around. And players players arrive having played in huge stadiums and in front of big crowds uh, for big clubs. Um, and you know there, there, there is always there does always seem to be a bit of a question mark over over them when they when they make the step up. But I think it's just getting being given the opportunity. And coming back to Eze, it's it almost doesn't matter who he's playing against. I think he's that skillful. It's when he's on his he's in full flow. He's he's a nightmare to play against. But he's so unpredictable. And as I say, he kind of he's dummies. The, the dummy for that goal 
It just kind of, he just dropped his shoulder. The defender's like, "Oh my god!" And he's and he drills it low. It's like you know, that's one of those kind of ones. It's a little bit embarrassing actually when you look back at it. <laughs> I think one thing I want from Eberichiese from here on out is to just demand the ball a little bit more. I think he can play in the mold of a Jack Grealish, but Jack Grealish constantly wants the ball. He's screaming at his teammates to give it to him because he knows what he can do with it. And I think, look, he's a young player growing into the Premier League. That will come, but but it's a great start. He did for that goal. That was you're quite right, but he did for that goal. You saw him, he screamed on the edge of the box and made a little, you know, two, three yard darting run. And I think the other thing about him that constantly amazes me about footballers, a lot of footballers do great things on instinct. Marcus Rashford is one of the players that I think plays best and, you know, scores best his best goals on instinct just without necessarily thinking. Eze seems to be a player who almost like plans a little bit of a, an attack in his mind. Before that goal, it was, it was almost as if he knew exactly what he was going to do drop into just on the edge of the box a little bit. When I get the ball, I'm going to drop the shoulder, bang, get a shot away. And it was, as Gregor said, you could see Wolves had absolutely no chance of stopping it. But it's another thing that's interesting. Bamford is 27 now, has had some time. Bielsa has clearly seen something in him and got, got all that potential out of him and potentially more to come. Eze is 22. He's not that... 18-year-old signed by a Premier League club. He's had, as Gregor said, he had games um, and experience before he came to the Premier League. And I saw him for QPR a few times uh, last season. You, he just looked so dangerous against any side. You know, QPR had an indifferent season and were struggling at different points. But even against the top sides, he just looked like a player with that ability to make, make things happen, as they always say. But he, he looks a fantastic signing. And I think it's it, the, the the assumption that he's the next Wilfred Zaha because he signed for Crystal Palace and he's quite skillful. I don't think that's necessarily right. I think he offers something completely different to Zaha. And I think that bodes really well for Palace. Lots of impressive players uh, who've come up from the EFL this year. We could have speak, spoken about Ben White, Ollie Watkins as well, side Ben Rama doing well too. Of course, uh, Greg, you mentioned Ben Davies could well be signing from Preston. Uh, to Liverpool to rescue their season, no doubt, um, <laughs> on the last day of this transfer window. But we'll see. Look, it'll be great to see him uh, make an impact at the club, of course. Um, uh, let's move on. Just because it's um, the final day of the transfer window, I wanted to ask you about deadline day. Hypothetically speaking, who you'd want your club to sign. Uh, lots of good players who are going to be out of contract in the summer. So we don't know what clubs might make moves. Of course, the big ones, Lionel Messi, but the likes of Julian Draxler, Memphis Depay, Sergio Ramos, uh, Sergio Aguero, David Alaba, all out of contract in the summer. So who knows if their clubs might uh, see if they can take some money instead of letting them go for free in the summer. I'm not sure Messi, after his contract in the summer, is going to be picked up um, just at this point. Um but I just I did, I did want to ask you that, Gregor. I want to start with you. One player that that you think your club should or could sign on the final day of the window. It's a waste of time for Celtic. Let's be honest. The season's Celtic over. need a whole team. Celtic <laughs> need more than one player. Yeah, and it was supposed to be Ben Davies. There you go. That's who he, he was on the verge of signing a pre-contract with Celtic, and then Liverpool popped along and said, "Hi, Ben. Fancy coming to the Premier League champions? Just along the road instead of up in Scotland." And he's like, "Yes, absolutely." So Ben Davies. We Celtic. I mean, come on. The thing is, Celtic are now operating in a in a. They're competing with other Championship clubs. So I did a piece the other week about you know young stars of the football league and up and coming players. And one of them was a guy uh, called Joel Randall, who plays in League Two for Exeter, and he's someone who he's so Celtic are now in competition with Swansea City 
for him. And I think no, no offence to Swansea City, you know, a, a big club, well intelligently run, good manager, but th- th- this is the kind of that's the the realm that Celtic now operate in, and and Rangers in, indeed. So, you know, scouring. I'd, I'd I'd like. I think that's a good, still a good, a good kind of blueprint for a club like Celtic, and it's a good blueprint for Championship clubs. You know, as much as we're talking about players moving from the Championship to the Premier League, equally scouring the lower leagues for good for talent, like someone like Joel Randall at Exeter. Go to go watch Exeter City any week, and you will find a player who's almost certainly going to step up to higher planes. So there you go. I've given you Joel Randall, but really I want Ben Davies. Tom Clark, who do you want at Lincoln? No one. We don't need anyone. <laughs> Um, uh, I don't know. Um, it'd be nice. I think uh, we had a striker called Tyler Walker on loan at Lincoln uh, last season from Nottingham Forest. This season he joined Coventry. Uh, I expected big things from him. He hasn't quite clicked, hasn't quite got the game time. So if I was choosing for Lincoln, I'd bring Tyler Walker home, so to speak, and bring him back to back to the Imps because I think he'd give us that uh, goal scoring threat that perhaps we lack sometimes but I'm because people I'm sure are sick of me talking about Lincoln I'm going to co-op Leicester as my Premier League team and say that I would like them to sign a striker maybe even Patrick Bamford maybe Danny Ings so that it would just take them up a notch and they wouldn't have to worry so much about missing Jamie Vardy and would make it a three-horse race for the Premier League title along with Manchester City and Liverpool. Diego Costa's out of contract at the moment, you know. Absolutely. Or or even go down to the the Championship and maybe look at signing Ivan Toney, who's another one who's got to have potential to make it to the Premier League, having worked his way up through the Football League. Really talented, quick, good finisher, good at holding the ball up and linking play. Yeah, so maybe maybe Leicester should follow the lead of other players and sign a sign a sign nick a Brentford player and bring Ivan Tony in and see if that can help them kick on a bit. Alison Rudd, this should be a long list. Liverpool. <laughs> There's only one player I'd quite like, and that is Hung Min Son, who didn't even get a name check in 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 Gary Jacobs' match report in the game on on Monday, which means he must be having an awful time. Um, uh, no, that, that, I'm obviously not being entirely serious, but whenever I um, watch him, he, and I'm very happy with Liverpool and the players we have, but he's one player. If we could somehow unrealistically take him, wow, 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 I'd like him. There's a couple I want for Man United, but um, David David Alaba would be great in defence. Um, his contract ends in the summer, you know, cheeky final day bid. Um, Ashraf Hakimi into Milan sort of right midfield right back who I think we need a little bit more quality on the ball no offence Aaron Wambasaka in the right back area I think he'd be absolutely fantastic but I think the biggest bit of, of of business that could be done on this final day of the deadline is Tottenham Hotspur you're right Alison what they need to do is cancel Gareth Bale's loan and cut their losses right now because they are not getting any value for money out of this I don't know how much they're paying him but it's not it's not peanuts they're getting nothing from it Send him back. Let Real Madrid pay the bill. And look, if the the amount they need to pay Real to cancel it isn't as big as the wages they're going to pay in the next six months, honestly, do it now because it's just a conversation that's going to keep going on and it's a needless one. He's not producing. There's no point. Um, There is a point for listening to the game podcast, though. It's all of us. We'll be back on Thursday. Alison Rudd, Tom Clark, Gregor Robertson, thank you very much. We'll end uh, on that note. But a pleasure to be with you for the last hour or so. 
And all of you listening as well, remember, get yourself a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times to get more of our award-winning journalism across all of your devices. Sign up today. You'll get yourself one month free. Just go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started. There are plenty of Premier League games this week. We'll review them all on Thursday. See you then. with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, ex-Special Forces soldier and best-selling novelist Andy McNabb talks candidly about growing up with his adopted family, his time in juvenile detention, and how he finally found his home in the British Army. You're responsible for yourself, whether you're a six-year-old or whether you're you know, 96-year-old, you're responsible for yourself. So suck it all up and just get out there. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. Andy McNabb in his own words. Now available as a podcast. Listen on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone.